CJ here, your Renaissance man for the New Dark Age, with another heaping helping of hazardous history. This is episode 156 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and this is going to be the second installment in my conversations with Army veteran of the Iraq and Afghan Wars, BT. And I highly recommend, if you've not already, you go listen to the previous episode, which is our introduction to all this, our first installment of this series. Before listening to this one, I think it'll make things make more sense and so on, but hey, do what you want. Before we get to that, I do have some very important announcements. One is that... I'm switching to a new media host, and as a result, I've got a new podcast feed address for the regular DHP feed. And I'm using a plugin. It's supposed to redirect you to the new feed. So it should, in most cases, if you're already subscribed to the original DHP feed, simply without you even having to do anything or whatever, uh, just redirect you so you're getting them now from the new feed. However, it seems that in some rare cases, depending on exactly what method or venue you're using to get the show, there might be some cases where it hasn't automatically redirected, and so I'm going to post the new feed address in the show notes for this episode and maybe do a separate post about it as well. Also, in the next few weeks, I'm going to start retiring a lot of early Dangerous History Podcast episodes. Specifically, I'm planning on retiring episodes 1 through 52. And this is for a variety of reasons I won't get into here for time. But what I'm going to do, they're not going to disappear entirely. What I'm going to do is take them off of the regular public DHP feed and put them in Patreon on the Patreon feed, you know, behind the paywall for those who donate five bucks a month or more to the Dangerous History Podcast. It'll be another uh, bonus thing you'll get from doing that is the first 52 episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast. So I'm letting you know this that way, if you're listening to some of these and you want to finish you know, download them, listen to them soon, because I will be pulling them off and then placing them in Patreon, of course. If you're already or want to become a Patreon supporter of the show, then it won't matter. You'll still have access to all of them. By the way, at least some of the topics I covered in those first 52 episodes, I am going to revisit in the future with probably longer, more in-depth, more detailed episodes, because some of these topics that I covered in the first 52 episodes are things that even since then I've already learned new stuff about, and especially if I get to the point where I'm doing this podcast as my full-time gig, which I would love to get to, I'd have an opportunity to really hit some of those topics in even more depth and detail with, of course, better production quality than I had in those first 52 episodes, where I was basically learning how to podcast by doing it, so it was kind of uneven for a while. And just in general, there's a bit of a soft reboot of the DHP that I'm working on now that should be completed over the next few weeks, and I'm not going to change anything about the real heart of the show and the types of things I talk about. I'm not going to go to less controversial stuff or suddenly start doing typical court historian stuff. Don't worry about that. I'm not changing my take on things or the types of things I cover one bit, but you know, there are some changes going on. New media hosting company is part of it. Some other things in the works. Advertisements will be coming on the DHP probably in the relatively near future as well. 
then, of course, one more thing before I transition to my conversation with BT, and that is I do have one awesome individual to thank for signing up as a Scholar Warrior supporter of the show since the last episode I produced. Big thank yous go out to Jair, and thank you, Jair, very much for stepping up to help support the show and keep the lights on and keep me in business here at the Dangerous History Podcast. And just as a friendly reminder to all of you listening, that if you go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-R-O-F-C-J, Patreon.com slash Prof C-J. And if you sign up to support this podcast with a contribution of five bucks per month or more, you'll get a thank you on the next episode that I produce, and you will also get access to bonus episodes available there and available nowhere else. In addition to that, you will get early access to regular DHP episodes with no commercials and no Patreon thank yous, etc. You'll also, of course, if you so desire, be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors Facebook group. That out of the way, without further ado, the second installment in A Modern Day Grunt's Perspective. BT, welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. Thanks for having me back, CJ. Well, um, where we left off the story last time, and of course, everybody ought to go listen to the previous episode if they haven't already before listening to this one, but your story was at the point where you were going through basic training, um, and, you, and you talked about some of the some of the shortcomings and, and issues with that, um, but then before we get back into your story. Um, let's just kind of take a moment and kind of quickly run through a, a sketch, an overview of what Iraq really is and kind of where it comes from. Because I think a lot of Americans don't even really hardly know that Iraq had anything going on before maybe the 1990s. So, mm -hmm. so what's the backstory of this region that in modern times we call Iraq? So the area that Iraq encompasses is the uh, was referred to as the Cradle of Civilization back in the days. Uh, it's a site where a lot of the earliest literature, science, math, and philosophies came from. And uh, that obviously changed once the Mongols went through. But back in the 16th century, Iraq became part of the Ottoman Empire – uh, or the area of Iraq became part of the Ottoman Empire, and that lasted until about 1920s, after the end of World War One and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Following World War One, the British administered the area, and it became uh, mandatory Iraq under British administration. So that lasted for uh, about a decade, and then uh, the British left, and it became the Kingdom of Iraq in 1933. Of course, there were a lot of uh, coups and overthrows, but eventually Iraq was controlled by Saddam Hussein from 1979 until 2003. So that's kind of like the quick history. And as far as physical understandings of Iraq, 
a rock is about the size of California. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a pretty substantial uh, size country. And in 2004, the population, uh, according to the Internet, uh, was about 26 million people. So, again, it, it's, it's a pretty large country and population, which are mostly in just a few cities. And now for, for where I was, uh, which was in Mosul, Iraq, uh, my first deployment, just wanted to give a little more of a specific for that area. So Mosul was built on the site of an Assyrian fortress that was on the west bank of the Tigris River. Uh, this was near the ancient Assyrian city of Nineveh, and it's actually the Nineveh province now. By the 8th century, Mosul had become the principal city of Mesopotamia and eventually reached its climax under the Zangig di- dynasty between 1127 and 1222. Mosul was famous for metalworking, uh, painting, and the prosperity ended abruptly in 1258 when the Mongols came through. Then Mosul was captured by the Ottoman Turks under Sultan Soliman, and uh, it was added to his empire. And the Ottomans ruled the region from 1534 until 1918. Uh, So going back to that British mandate period. Mosul was occupied by the British, uh, but Turkey wanted it. And the borders did not fall towards the Turkey. So that that caused a little bit of a, a strife in the area. And the, uh, the commercial Im- importance of the area was cut off because the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Until 1920s, when oil was discovered and Syria and Turkey both tried to take advantage of that. They built roads to try to make the transport of oil easier, but as far as continued history, that's pretty much where I'm going to jump to 2004, because this is during the time of our campaign, or right before the campaign that I was in. So Mosul had a population of 1.8 million residents, and just for a look at today after ISIS ran through it to the population estimate for Mosul is now 600,000. So quite a drop in uh, people. Yeah. That's like right up there with Detroit. Yeah. It's, it was a huge change between uh, obviously people being killed and uh, exodus from the area to the surrounding communities. Yeah. Again, or, kind, kind of like Detroit. Um, I, I guess, <laughs> I guess the main difference is in Detroit, it, it happened over the course of like 40 years. And in the case of Mosul, it happened over the course of maybe 10 years. Yeah. It was, it was a pretty rapid transition. Yeah. Yeah. And probably, probably, probably a bit more um, of the depopulation due to untimely death, even than Detroit in, in Mosul. So what's what was the population makeup? Because as as we all know, I mean, one of the problems with Iraq is it's kind of like not an organic nation, right? It's composed of these different groups who don't always like each other and consider themselves, you know, countrymen of each other. So what's the makeup like in Mosul? 
The thing I think Americans have problems with understanding is we consider the boundaries of Iraq to be a country. The Iraqi people don't really see it that way. We've got the the main three groups, which are the Shias, the Sunnis, and the Kurds. The Mosul area was mostly Kurds because it's up in the north, and if you go up further, you reach uh, what is Kurdistan. It's not officially a country, but the Iraqi government pretty pretty much understands that that's the Kurdish territory and it's going to cause a problem if they try to go in there. Obviously, uh, after the 91 campaign, when we tried to get the Kurdish to rise up against Saddam, that didn't work out too well for the Kurdish. So that definitely plays a problem into the, the campaign here in 2004. But in addition to the Kurds, there was a, actually a large minority of Christian Arabs so in the 1970s, the Ba'ath Party, uh, which I'm sure most people who have been alive during this time uh, are familiar with at least hearing, but the 1970s, the government began resettlement plans that increased the population of Arabs in the city. And the Ba'athist Party was overthrown in 2003 once the Iraqi war began. When they dissolved the Iraqi government, that is when we started to see a lot of the problems and ethnic uh, strife. It just basically became a civil war, even though they a lot of people don't want to define it as a civil war, but from the ground, it was definitely a civil war. The Ba'athist Party was overthrown in 2003, and a lot of ethnic strife began to pop up because the Kurdish were trying to reclaim the property that had been expropriated by the government from the 1970s. Mosul itself is the second largest city in Iraq, and it's about the size of Baton Rouge. The population of the surrounding areas, the one of the most major towns in the area besides Mosul is Talifar. And at 2004, there was a population of about 80,000 people. Looking at the area that our unit was actually responsible for in 2006 through 2008 was an area the size of Maryland. So it was an insanely large population and once I get into the numbers of soldiers, it's going to be uh, even more ridiculous when you think about it. Mm-hmm. The actual breakdown by the numbers, we're looking at about a 40% Sunni uh, population, 35% Kurdish, 15% Shia, and then 10% of just a wide range of smaller sects, the Yazadi and uh, Christians and so on and so forth. Now I'd like to move into what the military looked like in Mosul before we showed up. Mosul was home to a large Ba'athist Party headquarters and continued to be an important military center uh, even up until the war began. Saddam heavily drew from the Mosul area for their officers, uh, as it had been a common place for military officers to settle down as the years of war had progressed. 
we believe up to about 300,000 residents of the military came from Mosul. And looking at it in 2005, there were 7,000 former officers in the Mosul area and about 103,000 former soldiers, all of these people having lost their job or their government position or whatever it might be. There's a lot of people that uh, can potentially not like us very much. So once Saddam was taken down, a lot of the officers and soldiers that were unemployed now formed the core of the Sunni insurgency in Nenoa province. Two of the big reasons was because, again, unemployment was high, and there's just a lot of people sitting around with nothing to do. And then they see the invasion force of the U.S. military show up. So it's it's a really big call to arms either for patriotic reasons or trying to get rid of your enemies, which we will see uh, later. Yeah, yeah. And it it's always a very volatile situation when you've got a lot of young and even into middle-aged men who kind of are, you know, unemployed or underemployed or that sort of thing and feel like they don't really have decent opportunities. And then if you throw into that this context of a lot of these guys in this particular case have military training and experience, and there's the context of a foreign army (laughs) invading your neighborhood, and it's just a complete powder keg. I mean, it's not at all surprising, historically speaking, that it would that it would it would turn pretty bad. The army has, or no, I shouldn't say the army. It seems like the military has a hard time accepting the fact that counterinsurgency is far more likely of a combat situation that we're going to find ourselves in, as opposed to Cold War era tactics. Right. Yeah. We T- haven't tanks had- jousting, basically. Yeah, exactly. We haven't had the tank battles in a long time. We saw Vietnam, which was essentially a counterinsurgency operation. And, you know, history shows us a lot of examples. One of the key problems with the army is it just it doesn't want to change uh, the bureaucracy of the higher level officers refusing to accept the new ideas and wanting to maintain that Cold War era, because that's where you're going to get the big awards. That's where you get the big praise. Everybody finds counterinsurgency as kind of a like a hindrance and something that's going to go away. I bet a lot of well, I knew I know for myself, I did not believe that these wars were going to last as long as they did. Yeah, Afghanistan is uh, seemingly never going to end. I guess it's it's now you know four four World War Twos. Um, or at least four World War Twos in terms of how long America was in World War Two, so it, it's incredible. And you know, another thing, just as an aside, that it it seems to me, um, as as an outsider, but a guy who's who's long been interested in like military history and things, is it seems like the different branches of the armed forces they each have like certain things that they like in terms of like equipment and tactics, and it has little to nothing to do with practicality, whatever it is that they think is like sexy that they want a lot of. It basically has to do with kind of like what they like. So in other words, you know, when I think of the Air Force, right, just to pick on them as an example of this, um, you know, the Air Force always wants 
the sexiest, fastest fighter planes. Like that's, you know, what they're always, they're always trying to get. And, and to a lesser extent, you know, like big bombers and, and, and ICBMs and whatever, but like in reality, if you look at what, what air force planes are the most useful to the actual conflicts that America's been in, in recent decades, it's things like the A-10, you know, that are completely unsexy, that are these kind of ugly looking utilitarian planes that are designed for close ground support. Um, mm-hmm. And the Air Force has been trying to kill the A-10 almost since they they got it, even though it's proven to be like one of the most useful things um, for the conflicts America's actually been in. So, you know, just just that as an example, but it seems like like there's there's a version of that going on to some degree in each one of the armed forces where there's like certain types of weapon systems that they really place emphasis on, regardless of how useful those actually are. And, and just, you know, as a history guy, it makes me think of, I think I mentioned this on the show way back in the uh, Bronze Age Collapse episodes, but, you know, the, the ancient Bronze Age armies, the big prestige job was to be a charioteer. That was like, you know, where the elite of the army would be. And they continued to act this way and to place all their resources into chariots and things, even when chariots started to become clearly obsolete and were no longer dominating the battlefield. Um, a lot of the kingdoms of the Bronze Age would just keep heaping all of the, all of the praise and promotions and resources and prestige on the charioteers. So, anyway, just just couldn't resist the kind of you know hi- history guy aside there, that you know these these patterns seem to repeat over and over of of militaries, oftentimes not being totally practical. You can see that a lot. This is an aside as well, but you can see a lot of that. With the French military going into World War One, I. I mean, they went in with the same uniforms that Napoleon wore about a right. hundred years prior, and by the time World War One ended, I mean, we had tanks and planes. So it's just an absurd increase in technology, which I I feel that only war ever really brings. The some of the biggest things that we seem to receive as part of the technology of the military like gps's only comes when it does suit the military Hmm. and specifically i did want to talk about the a10 because that was the first thing that came to my mind uh, as being a ground guy once upon a time Um, i think the a10 is perfect for the role that it was designed for but i think it is beyond overkill with counterinsurgency in Afghanistan and in America too, but there have been tests for smaller, slower kind of vehicle, uh, aircraft, sometimes even prop uh, powered, which makes a lot more sense with these close-in air supports that we require. Sure, especially because... in like an urban area. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I can see how the A10, if you're if you're using it to support guys on the ground in an urban type area, the A10 would be would be really um, problematic. Yeah, it's it's definitely far too expensive of a platform to deploy with the objectives that they have currently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I guess the F35 is even more useless. The F35, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't even want to talk about the F-35 yeah, because yeah, can, the <laughs> amount of money that we put into that thing, it we could have revitalized the entire military and uh, still probably would have came out ahead. Yeah. Or even, you know, fixed Detroit a couple of times by now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, um, getting, getting back to, back to um, Iraq, 
So you you deploy to Iraq for the first time in October 2006. So yes, walk us through that. Describe that for us. Um. So just as an aside, prior to us deploying, we we deployed in October. At the end of September, a CBS News report came out uh, talking about the latest milestone for the country, which was the day that more soldiers or military personnel had died in war as opposed to how many people were killed during the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Hmm. So, I mean, that's that's pretty ominous going into. I didn't really pay attention to it at the time, but now looking back, it's – it's not a good sign for starting our deployment that we've already lost more people than the attack that we are retaliating for, even though Iraq wasn't retaliation uh, for 9-11. Yeah, but that's what they were strongly trying to imply, uh, oh, yes. the, the Bush people. Um, yeah, and th- that's that also raises questions as well. I mean, obviously, from your from your individual perspective that you're going right into this, but also the bigger picture of – you know what does that say about your your strategy right that oh we have this problem where 2973 people got killed we need to solve this problem and you're already by 2006 into the realm of more people have died than died in the original problem that you're you know allegedly trying to solve yeah i mean i definitely think overkill might be a bad pun to use but it just doesn't feel like a uh, a good way to start, and especially because we know that 2006 was not the end of the Iraqi campaign. Sure, not even close. <laughs> All right, so you you get on the long the long journey. Yeah, once we because to move a military unit is a ridiculously large amount of time and effort, uh, putting stuff on the trains putting stuff on the airplanes, putting stuff on the boats. It's, uh, it's a rather chaotic time. So, and I mean, that, that eats into the time that you have like your one year of redeployment people. I don't think realize that in that one year after you come back, as you're preparing to go on your next deployment, you're shuttling equipment around, you're receiving new units or receiving new equipment, getting rid of old equipment it's a very chaotic time that takes a lot of time away from the service members and being able to be around their family, which just adds additional strains on how hard it is for the military personnel to go off to war and having to worry about you know what's going on back at home because you were barely there most of the time. The... Flight to Iraq, as you can understand, as people probably understand, it was a really long flight. So we went from Fort Bliss, Texas to Maine, and then we stopped off there for a couple hours. Then we went to Germany. Then we went to Kuwait. And once we got to Kuwait, one of the first things that I noticed was it might as well have been a sandblaster because the moment you step off the bus, once you get off the tarmac, it's just, you're just being pelted by really fine uh, grains of sand and it's hotter than all get out. So it's not a good initial impression of the Middle East. I mean, I think it's pretty stereotypical to what everybody thought it was going to be. 
Mm. Uh, and every time I went to Kuwait, it was the same thing. It was the same horrible raining kind of sand issue. And then once we got to where we were staging, it's weeks of waiting around classes, saying that you're going to go and then you don't go for another three days. Uh, just the typical movement of large amounts of people and equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, just out of curiosity, what, what kinds of classes are they sending you to at this point? So um, we have a lot of the training on, you know, what an IED is supposed to be, what a VBIT is supposed to be. And after going through the training and actually deploying to our combat zone, it definitely felt like most of the training they gave us was absolutely useless. Hmm. Because, uh, for example, they say a way to spot a V-bid is if the back of the vehicle is sagging, uh, like the suspension's gone out. But as soon as you get out to the city, every car is sagging. Every car has missing windows. Orange taxis were another point of interest that they said are typically V-bids. Almost every other vehicle is a taxi out there, though. So the perception that they give us in the training never matches reality. Hmm. And, and V-bid, I'm not familiar with that one. I'm guessing that means a, a like basically a car bomb. Yes. Uh, sorry. Uh, I'm just so used to using acronyms and I, I do explain this, uh, in a little bit, but, uh, yeah, it's a vehicle born improvised explosive device. Okay. Yeah. Cause you know, in for, for us civilians back in the States, we hear IED all the time, you know, so, so most of us know what that is just from watching the news, but yeah, VBIT is one that we don't hear as often. So anyway, I just, just wanted to make sure based on what you said, I thought I had it, uh, figured out from context, uh, context. So, so even at this point, some of the training initially might seem like it's more relevant than bayonet charges, but it's still going to be problematic to what you're actually going to be dealing with. It definitely goes back to the refusal of the army to accept new doctrine. And during the Vietnam War, we asked for some British officers to come because they were they had been part of the Malaysian emergency. And they gave a report on things that the the army should do to change its strategy. And pretty much the entire report went unheeded because, again, everybody wants the big booms in the armor Nobody wants in the street fighting. It's just not sexy enough. And we definitely paid the price for it with being completely unprepared for the war that we had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, most of that time it was uh, Westmoreland as the, the, the general in charge over there. And, you know, had a, good, had a good record as a World War II guy and a Korean War guy. And mm-hmm. that's all well and good. But um, very very, very different war. Yes. All right. So, um, so you finally go to Iraq. So what happens? What's your experience? To overview, and this might seem weird to people who have never gone into this experience, but everything seems completely normal to me. Um, you know, you step off the plane into a foreign country, you're like, Well, there's dirt, there's whatever. It's just like home. It's just in a different place. And then you show up to Iraq and again, you're like, oh, well, there's dirt and everything. This is normal. It probably didn't. It probably helped that where I grew up, 
looks exactly like a rock, just a desert mountainous area. So that might have played a role into it. But looking back at it now, it's crazy to think that, you know, you show up to a war zone and you're just like, eh, this is, you know, this is what I'm here for. It, the Army definitely does a good job in training you to kind of just accept whatever fact that you're thrown into. And I had already prepared for the fact that I was going to deploy. So I don't know how other people dealt with it, but me specifically, it probably took five months until I had that, oh shit moment that I'm in a combat zone. So it's really weird looking at it from both ends of, uh, both ends of the time frame. And one thing that was amazingly disappointing was when you got into your first actual home in Iraq, you realize, Hey, I've got 12 months until I come home. That's a pretty daunting thought in itself. And later on we would be uh, extended. So my perception wasn't even uh, correct. Where, where were you, where were you sent when you were in Iraq? So I was sent to FOB Merez. FOB stands for Forward Operating Base. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just a large base that was located next to the Mosul Airport, and we strung some wire around it and said, "Hey, this is our area now." And I wanted to give a quick story because to give perception, I think a lot of the people in our time view the Iraqis as just you know. These people that are bent on, you know, destruction and chaos. And when you actually go and you see things, it's it's a lot different. But I did have a interesting story to tell. So at the um, at the airport, a soldier was operating a front end loader, uh, moving things around, and it ended up rolling over a landmine. And it exploded and it started to catch on fire. The driver was able to jump out and move to safely. And the explosion was reported by an onlooker pretty much immediately because they were basically staring at the thing happened. And within three minutes, the Iraqi airport fire department team had shown up and they had put out the fire, which is just a... a really quick, good response uh, for their actions. The three firefighters that showed up uh, were issued a a medal from uh, General Petraeus, and uh, it, it's nice to see that good actions actually are rewarded and kind of humanizing the Iraqi population, which is definitely something that I think a lot of efforts were put into. Uh, dehumanizing them, just like, uh, you know, during the the Philippines war, the Spanish war, you always want to dehumanize your enemy so that it's easier to not like them. Right. Which, which always makes it very complicated when you're in one of these insurgency, counterinsurgency type of things where it's like, on the one hand, you got to dehumanize the population because they're all potential insurgents. And mm-hmm. you, and you want to be able to you know kill them quickly when necessary, but on the other hand, you're also supposed to be protecting 
in a way, the, the, the non-combatant civilian population who are not actually insurgents. And so you yeah. end up in this weird dilemma where on the one hand, oh, we're here to help you people. And on the other hand, oh, they're all, you know, whatever the, whatever the particular ethnic slur is for that group, you know, they're all blah, blah, blah. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, a, there's usually like a different one for each war, you know, a different, a different uh, uh, racial slur. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what it, what it was back in the Philippines. Um, I think there were a few in the Philippines, and of course, a lot of people know know Vietnam gooks, right? Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a good point to bring up because a lot of people, um, they they kind of see not just Iraqis but but the people of a lot of these countries, um, ranging from like North Africa all the way to Pakistan, mm-hmm. as being sort of like the the terrorists on the movie Team America World Police, you know, <laughs> where yeah. they're like, that's the whole population of these hundreds of millions of people. First off, if you're American, they're all Arabs, right? Even the ones that aren't. Um, yep. And they're all just, you know, they're all just kind of a monolithic, a monolithic group. And they're all just kind of people who who sit around um, and and go, oh, Dirk, Dirk, Allah, Muhammad, Jihad, you know. <laughs> um I guess Don't forget, they all burn flags, and they all just wake up every morning and say how much they hate America. Sure, right, right. I mean, and they're they're all they're all like, um, you know, a half step away from just being a suicide bomber or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's good to it's good to point out that like, no, they're you know, they're talking about millions of people. They're not all crazy. They're not all bad. So. Once you're there, what are what are you um, dealing with in terms of like your your living conditions, your your facilities? Um, how are how are things at the base and and around where you're operating? Uh, so first, we lived in something that was called a container housing unit, or we called it a chew. Basically, it is just a shipping container with some windows and an air conditioner and a door put onto it. And it was pretty comfortable living, especially compared to, you know, living in a tent or sleeping outside like the previous iterations of deployments did. So overall, we had it we had it really good as far as deployments go. Um, I mean, we had a gym that was fully stocked. We had an MWR place that you could use computers and try to Skype. But I mean, this was 2005. So Internet wasn't very good back then. Right. Um we had a, a dining facility, which actually is going to come into play again later because it plays a pretty large role in things that happened on the base. But we we had it really good. There, there's squabble back and forth between obviously everybody in uh, the army specifically, but between the guys who deployed to a major base, which Mosul was – as opposed to one of these little dinky outposts where maybe you you don't even have phones, which there definitely were uh, outposts like that. So from the perspective of comfort cre- uh, comfort uh, items, where I was was pretty good. Mm-hmm. What about what about outside the base? What about Mosul and the surrounding area? So this is where. Me saying the training that we received was uh, essentially useless. The first time that I drove out, um, it it was insane. It was like it's very hard to go from a, an urban situation where everything's normal to a 
an area that's been a combat zone for decades. One of the first things that I noticed is everything was just destroyed. You could look into every building. You could see bullet holes, uh, some rather large bullet holes as well. Um, the roads were just in complete shambles, holes all over the place, places where IEDs had blown up originally. Um, the, instead of cones, they would use little rocks to like mark the roads that um, the area that you could still drive in. So it was just a complete culture shock. There was one of the things that we were told is, hey, uh, if you see some trash on the ground, it's probably covering up an IED. Again, the problem is there was trash everywhere, just <laughs> flowing around. It At that point, there were no services available because the government had been dissolved. So everything that was normally getting done is no longer getting done. And the result is trash everywhere. One, one, I, one site that really stuck into my uh, memory was there was a semi truck with a trailer and everything, and it was just a burnt out Hulk in the city, and it it just stayed there. It was hit with with a IED or something, but you walk around and you just see the constant reminders that you are indeed in a war zone. And then to add to, I guess, kind of the uh, the perception of what. Iraq would be the electrical wires were extremely uh, haphazard. I mean, some were held up by strings and they were too low. We would constantly be tearing down electrical wires with our Humvees because, you know, we had antennas and uh, turrets and everything on them. So we were knocking down power lines, phone lines all the time. Uh, Again, definitely not one of those things that helps make everybody feel that you are a liberator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, I mean, it kind of sounds like something you would see in, I don't know, a Mad Max movie or some other, you know, post, post-apocalyptic sort of a thing, you know, maybe one of the one of the Terminator movies or something. And yeah, that does sound like a weird juxtaposition where you're, you're on the base where, you know, by the standards of, of a military base, things are relatively decent and comfortable. And then you go out, it kind of recalls to my mind what you often see in Vietnam movies and documentaries where at least some of the larger bases in, in Vietnam kind of sound like what you're talking about. Um, that this forward operating base here where, you know, it's relatively comfortable and there's like a lot of amenities and, you know, that's, that's something the, the American military has been famous for since at least world war two, if not, if not further is like wherever the American military goes, they, they bring a lot of stuff yeah, we tend to have a very large footprint. And I mean, just looking at it from the logistical side, there's there's so much pre-planning that has to be done that it makes sense to just have these large warehouses, especially because we were pretty much the final city up to the north. So it was pretty strategically located, which is why they wanted to take Mosul at the beginning of the deployment because it is a very uh, strategic location. Another thing that we saw in the city was the unemployment rate was really bad. I, I remember I, I had known the percentages before, but it's escaped me now. But there were just old men, young men sitting down everywhere 
every time we'd go out on patrol and most of them just kind of stared at us. So another one of the, the training things that we were told is, oh, if you see two or more military age males, uh, they are suspicious. But then you get out into the city and military age male means any male between the age of 10 and like 70. <laughs> so pretty much everybody. Mm -hmm. And you get out there and you're told that, hey, these people might be the ones that are going to attack you. And it's just everywhere. So just like with the trash, you become so complacent that you don't really think about it anymore until something actually happens from the complacency. And then you just kind of re restart the cycle all over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's got to play hell with your with your your nerves and you know, you know all that stuff. I'm, I'm I'm sure we'll get into some of that stuff later on, but yeah, that that must be great. Like as soon as you start to get used to conditions, something happens to then make you think that like you know there's a bomb under every every piece of trash. Mm -hmm. You you can for me you can still see that today. I still. Like I, I will walk to the side of trash. If I see it on the road, I get really nervous going under underpasses or if I do see a hole in the road and I haven't, the last time I was in Iraq was 2008 on the ground. And then I was in, uh, aviation for two deployments. But even to this day that, that association with, uh, things that are out of the ordinary and danger is still potentially very present in soldiers. Combat does weird things to you, especially, uh, you know, your mindset and where you're coming from. But I know I got to a point that I was actually wishing that a vehicle was a V-bid or something like that because I was that bored. I would rather be blown up than have to continue the monotony because I was one of the few people that just... Every time I went out, it seemed like nothing would happen. But then when other people went out or other patrols went out, they, they were in uh, a lot of contact. So that definitely affected me as a combat soldier because you kind of get into that, oh, well, you know, I still have to prove myself kind of thing. And then to go through a couple months with no action, I mean, it definitely does weird things to your head to where that you wish that there was a bomb next to you. Yeah, I mean it you know, just me me trying to wrap my head around that. It seems like like you might end up feeling, you know, if if other other people near you are having all kinds of stuff happen and then things are kind of quiet for you, it it must give you the sense of like oh, it's got to be my turn, right? Was, yeah. was that going on? Um, yes. Almost like a superstitious sort of a feeling like oh, everyone else keeps having things happen to them, so I've got to be due. Yeah. And I mean, that that's the gambler fallacy right there. I mean, it, it took quite some time for me to actually get in the combat. And I mean, from my perspective, I thought I had a really easy deployment until I started talking to my wife. And I mean, my wife and I have been married for 10 years now and we dated in high school. So we've known each other half of our lives and she had absolutely no clue what I did the nine years that I was in the military. I just kind of started opening up over the past year. And again, looking at it from now, it's like, wow, um, it's very hard to wrap your mind around that I could have these 
feelings or ideas that in most cases are absurd. Most people don't want things to explode next to them. But when you get into that culture of, you know, combat soldiers, I think it's just a very weird thing for someone who's never experienced it to understand exactly what you are feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, One thing I I read up on a bit a long time ago was the psychological effects on um, American bomber crews running missions over Europe in World War II. And like, if anyone's seen, for example, the movie Memphis Bell, um, it, it depicts some of this where, I mean, if you think about it, if you're, if you're a bomber crew on a B-17 or something like that in World War II, it's like a huge amount of whether you make it through your missions or not is just luck. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody on the, on the crew of the plane could all be doing their jobs perfectly. And you just happen to get hit with something, you know, um, and so, yeah, I mean, you find that it, it has, it has somewhat similar kind of weird psychological effects on people where, where they become kind of superstitious or they become kind of fatalistic or they start to have, like you were saying, these, these thoughts that normally would, would seem, you know, just absurd, um, where, where people are like upset that their, that their plane didn't get, didn't get shot up more because they're like, oh no, that means when it does happen, it'll be worse, you know? Um, yeah. But but anyway, so so what are you what are you uh, uh, dealing with? What are you facing? Um, like what what's your uh, what are you what are you looking for? Um, and and what are you facing as, as potential adversaries in in the Mosul area? Uh, you you touched on it before, but one of the biggest things that we had to struggle with is we were not fighting a uniformed enemy. I mean, you had no idea who was friendly, who was just a a friendly civilian and who was watching you to plan out an attack. It it could be man, women, man, woman, or child. There was really no difference between any of the people that could be the threat, uh, especially as time dragged on and we started seeing more, you know, female suicide bombers, uh, children being used And children are also used a lot for the scouting of our movements because they're just far less likely to draw attention. We, or I think a lot of the idea was that the, the, we'll just call them terrorists, but uh, I I don't like that term, but the, the terrorists that we were facing, that they were just kind of shambly and they didn't really have any idea what they were doing. Uh, but groups did show the capability to set up quite complex ambushes and coordinated attacks, which definitely has to play in with the availability of technology. Um, being able to have a cell phone to communicate is a lot better than not having any real type of communications other than like, I don't know, whistles and flags and things of previous warfare. Now you could have a, a spotter miles away and, the uh, whoever's planning the attack has plenty of uh, advanced knowledge as to when the unit that they are trying to attack is actually going to show up. They were able to bury a large amount of explosives in a very short time, especially towards the end of the deployment. Their capabilities just kept increasing. And that was another thing that that was more of a pretty solid indicator of something that's suspicious 
if you saw what we would think of as work crews on the side of the road, uh, typically there was no road maintenance actually happening in Iraq. And more than likely, those were people that were indeed trying to plant bombs or at least scout out areas. So there were a few indicators that were pretty solid. uh, And that was one of them. Another thing that made it really easy for them to uh, attack us with is we're in urban operations. We no longer have the high ground, which is what we want. We don't have the capability really to use our big bombs or uh, air support because the more collateral damage you cause, obviously, the more potential enemies that you are going to make. We had really limited choices for routes. We were stuck in traffic and... The people there obviously had the advanced knowledge of the terrain and local areas, which we just didn't have. So it was far easier for them to maneuver around than it was for us, especially if we had our Humvees or our larger armor uh, vehicles. And it's pretty easy to find out where the Americans are coming from because we're in vastly different vehicles than everybody else. And sometimes you're forced to take the same route uh, more frequently than you would want to. So when when you were going out on on forays on patrols, what what was your what was your overall purpose? Were you basically just patrolling around, kind of looking out for potential trouble? We there there were a lot of different um, kind of operations that we would run. One of the most you know, basic are the actual patrols going out there. I forget the exact term, but something like maneuver by fire, just kind of uh, going out there and trying to provoke somebody to attack us with our actual presence in the area. We also would do uh, convoy security or route clearance. So if a logistic unit needs to go out, we would go out and uh, provide the protection aspect or uh, just going out and looking for IEDs that might be on the side of the road, either by having them explode on us, or we have a couple techniques for identifying IEDs, uh, which I will get into in a little bit. You know, are- what's interesting is that that first type of patrol you described, where you basically go around looking to provoke somebody so that then you can take them out, that sounds exactly like the famous search and destroy missions in Vietnam, where where soldiers would go out on a patrol, you know, in that case, usually like into some jungle or some village or something. And it was basically like, yeah, we just kind of go prowling through the area, um, trying to provoke the enemy into ambushing us mm-hmm. so that we then know where they are and can fight them. And man, talk about a case of like, not learning from past experience, you know, because that didn't really, that didn't really win the Vietnam War for us doing that. No, and we're going to see that theme continue to play out uh, yeah. as we go along with the story. Yeah, yeah. It, it it seems to give a lot of initiative to the enemy in a way because they can just, you know, sort of wait and, you know, strike whenever they think they've got they've got an advantage. Um, but anyway, what what else what else uh, were, were you doing and were you dealing with and facing? Later on in the deployment, we started doing this uh, – Cellular reconnaissance, which was this uh, super secret squirrel kind of things, to the point that my I had to take my Humvee in to get all of this uh, gear added to it. And 
when they were finally finished with it, I was told that I'm not allowed to turn my head around and look in the back seat because the back seat of my Humvee was now top secret. And <laughs> I, we, like, we couldn't look at it, which is. It's pretty weird. Yeah, it, it's definitely a difference from what we're normally used to uh, dealing with. And I have some stories about the uh, of the actual cellular reconnaissance mission that we did that was kind of interesting. But for the most part, we were going out to try to find either things that were being planted to cause harm later on or to provoke the enemy to uh, attack us. What other things were the uh, the enemy, the insurgents, what other things were they trying to do that, that you were trying to, to foil? Bridges were uh, kind of a big target. In some areas, didn't have any bridges. We had five main bridges over the, uh, the Tigris, and then we had a couple other, not over water bridges, just your standard kind of overpass. Um, but that... Those are pretty vital because, I mean, that that's the way that we expect to go if we need to get across. And having the bridges destroyed not only impacts us, but it also impacts the flow of traffic in the city, the, the morale of the people in the city, and it's just going to start causing more aggravation. So we tried to, we tried to uh, you know, protect the bridges, trying to make sure that our main routes of logistical support weren't damaged. And my, one of my platoon sergeants, he had been a tanker before uh, on uh, an Abrams tank, but we started moving away from using the armor and using pretty much everybody as infantry. So most of your field artillery guys, your tankers, uh, they were just, they were pulling standard infantry kind of, moves and instead of using their big fancy toys but uh the platoon sergeant was going under a bridge in baghdad and they had uh stacked up a couple old artillery shells uh and the detonation went through the abrams so i mean you got to think about this big armored vehicle and his driver was killed and I know that that caused him a lot of problems. He definitely he definitely didn't act right. And it was very apparent the toll that took on him and uh, the way that he was impacted, impacted his military career. And that caused him a lot more anger because he wasn't being promoted to where he should be because of the, the back issues that he had. So there's a lot of different impacts that are, are hard to wrap your mind around, again, unless it is a situation that you can understand. Mm-hmm. So what's, what was your experience of the difference between what you expected all this to be like, you know, based on the, the usual stuff, m- movies and Hollywood and video games and whatever, and then what it was actually like? We had talked about in the last episode about uh, the similarities between Hollywood and reality, and probably one of the best entertainment things uh, was by the comedian Cat Williams, 
And his joke basically goes, you know, what are we doing in Iraq? Can anyone tell me what the Iraqi military uniform actually looks like? And he gives a pause and said, go ahead, I'll wait. And he ends it with, we're not killing their army, we're killing them, which is exactly what, you know, that Team America that we talked about, you get taught that everybody's Durka Durka Muhammad Jihad <laughs> and everybody's on, everybody is declared Jihad on us when a vast majority of the people, they just want to go along with their lives. They've lived in a war zone, so it's just meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So Hollywood definitely had an impact until we actually deployed. And then, I mean, once you've been there once, your perception has changed that I don't think Hollywood really bugs you anymore. Unless, of course, we're talking about that. I forget what the name of it was, but the movie about the EOD soldiers and uh, like he's running around with a hoodie on and a pistol. Like that's one of the more ridiculous things that oh, do make yeah. us mad. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I, I think it's one I might not have even have I might have not even seen that one. Um was that was that Hurt Locker or was that Hurt Locker, that's okay. the one. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, you're not missing anything. It's okay. just uh it's just ridiculous. So one of the hardest harder things to deal with is the reality that you might have to shoot somebody. You might have to kill somebody to protect yourself, to accomplish a mission, or to protect other people. And that definitely causes a lot of problems because one of the military maxims is there's no such thing as friendly fire. And probably one of the more popularized issues was the Pat Tillman uh, friendly fire incident. Uh, Pat Tillman was a NFL player who went and joined the Army Rangers and was deployed to Afghanistan. They, Pat Tillman was out on a patrol and their uh, one of their vehicles broke down, so they had to hire a local trucker to haul the vehicle and they split up. They started having the standard communication problems. And eventually one of the groups came under fire and as uh, Tillman and another soldier, Brian O'Neill, were trying to take the higher ground, a squad leader on the different convoy saw an Afghani soldier and mistook him for an enemy, started opening fire and that fire killed uh, Pat Tillman and Brian O'Neill. And the incident was covered up, essentially, trying to say that the fire had come from the enemy instead of the friendly fire, as it actually was. And the one who actually shot into the area, the soldier who shot into the area, just kind of recently opened up to his story. And it's it's pretty heartbreaking to think that not only you know did you have to kill somebody – but you also ended up killing another American. That's uh, definitely up there in the harder things to have to deal with. Yeah, I can only imagine the, and I and I recommend it to everybody. There's that documentary. I think it's just called the Tillman Story. Um, you might be familiar with it. Um, I think it was on Netflix. It might still be on Netflix for all I know. 
And I think that was also based on, there's a, there's a book, I think it was by John Krakauer, if I'm not mistaken, the same guy that, that's written all these books about like famous uh, extreme mountaineering stuff and all kinds of other, he, he writes like really, really interesting nonfiction books. And I think it was Krakauer, I could be wrong, mm-hmm. who wrote, wrote the book, I think it's Where Men Win Glory or something like that, um, which was, which was uh, about Pat Tillman. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I get the impression from all the, all the reading I've done in, in history of modern war and from talking to lots of veterans of different conflicts, I get the impression that friendly fire is a much more frequent thing than most people who've never been in war think it is you know we we i think have a, have a view that in modern war everything's so high tech that everyone always knows where everybody else is and you just don't make mistakes like that you know you got gps and night vision and all these cool things and i don't know i i get the impression that it's one of those kind of like dark secrets that friendly fire stuff still happens pretty often and that for obvious reasons the the military and the politicians would rather the general public not really understand this and and think that though this is an extremely rare rare thing um what what what's your your take on that i definitely think friendly fire is an issue um and that kind of goes into the mentality that again if you've never experienced it it's hard to comprehend I mean, friendly fire just makes you look bad as a military, unfortunately, and especially with somebody as high profile as Pat Tillman. Um, I I might be wrong, but I believe uh, General Stanley McChrystal was involved in the uh, some aspect of uh, covering that incident up. Uh, I can't say with definity because I have not looked enough into that story, but I believe that I've seen it pop up a couple times. And then, of course, uh, Stanley McChrystal would go on to be uh, immortalized in uh, War Machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's been it's been long enough. I mean, I probably was was looking into the Tillman story probably like close to a decade ago or so. So I don't I don't remember, but that seems entirely uh, possible um, that McChrystal was involved in that. But it is interesting how. You know, not only did the Bush administration initially try to hide the fact he was killed by friendly fire, but they conduct they they constructed and were putting out until eventually the truth came out. They were putting out this entirely opposite story, where they were like basically saying that Pat Tillman had single handedly taken on like half the Taliban in a blaze of glory to save the rest of his men. Like they turned it into this complete, you know, Hollywood hero. BS story because they're like, oh, not only do we not want people to know Tillman was killed by friendly fire, but then, um, you know, let's turn him into like a modern day, a modern day kind of Audie Murphy character or something like that, you know. And and then not only did the story come out that it was friendly fire, but then things started to come out that Tillman was kind of turning anti-war and was possibly going to go public with with his, you know, new opinions about these wars and that that might have been a huge huge propaganda blow against um the official the official narrative and the administration and everything and then there's the theories of you know was the prop was the was the friendly fire that killed pat tillman purely an accident or was there some version of like a hit 
you know, and that, and that gets into kind of darker theorizing, but were there, you know, special ops type people, the really clandestine types who, who somehow found out that Pat Tillman might have been preparing to go public with a strong anti-war point of view and decided like, no, we can't let that happen. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying I, I know I know the truth, but it is it's kind of interesting to consider. If anyone's seen the the Netflix series that came out recently called Wormwood, which is about um, MK Ultra, and in particular about the the most famous death that happened uh, during the CIA's MK Ultra experiments, which was an army chemist named Frank Olson, and basically what this it's a really interesting series because it kind of combines dramatic reenactment with sort of more documentary style. And the conclusion they come to is, you know, the old story was Frank Olson died jumping out of a window of, of, a, of a high floor hotel room in New York, and that he essentially jumped out of the window because he had a bad trip when the CIA experimented with LSD on him. And the guy's son then kind of wouldn't take take the official story for an answer and kept digging into it and basically came to the conclusion that the CIA killed Frank Olson because mm-hmm. he was starting to no longer believe in in the things they were doing and he had all this, you know, secret insider knowledge that he potentially might share with the American people or the press or whatever. And that basically the CIA was, they essentially killed him and did it in a way to make it look like some sort of accident or suicide falling out of a window. But anyway, long, long story short, I've, I've, I've wondered about the, the Pat Tillman story, you know, and as, as with any, any conspiracy like that, like I, I don't claim to have any kind of like special secret inside proof one way or the other, but it's an it's one of those things where there's enough there that it kind of kind of makes me wonder. Conspiracy theories definitely are a problem because there are a lot of situations that just don't seem to make sense and from a very early on position the the story with Jessica Lynch and her unit getting captured uh that story always just sounded so suspicious to me that obviously I wasn't there, so maybe I could be wrong. But they're, they're part of the convoy, which was a big, long convoy, just happened to get lost and then just happened to roll into Fallujah. Their guns just happened to not work. And then uh, I believe it was one of the doctors at the hospital that Jessica Lynch was taken to and held, uh, went and found some Americans and told her, and then they did, or uh, told the Americans, and they did some grand rescue mission. And uh, that that one always seemed uh, sketchy to me. And m- a little more recently, uh, the shoot down of Extortion One Seven, which is one of the Special Forces Chinooks uh, that ended up with, I believe, one of the largest losses of life, and that was the one that had. Uh, I believe it was the members that killed Osama. And there, there's a lot of sketchy things associated with that story. But bringing it back around, I'm sure as a fan of history, you're, you're aware of the term fragging, for, yep. especially from the Vietnam. Now, I, wouldn't, I, I don't 
uh, I don't have any firsthand encounter with those. But one thing that you do have to keep in mind is when you're in a when you're in a combat unit or uh, I can't speak to non-combat units, so that's why I always say combat. But you form this bond, that brotherhood that the military always talks about, which has a life expectancy of just a couple years. This bonding between everybody doesn't tend to uh, stick around like we are kind of told to believe. But you have to look at the fact that, you know, however many soldiers are in the unit, everybody depends on one another. So if somebody gets injured or if somebody starts questioning things and aren't as willing to be as aggressive as they need to, um, it definitely presents a problem and depending upon the character of people, because one thing that I thought when I joined the military, I thought it was going to be, you know, this higher caliber of person willing, willing to, you know, lay down their life. And I was sorely disappointed. The military is made up of pretty much what you see in the civilian world. You've got some good people. You've got some bad people. You've got some really bad people. But there's always this kind of thought that when you hear about these stories of, you know, abuse or detainee abuse and you try to look at it from the fact of, oh, well, you sh- just shouldn't have engaged in it. But if the people that are around you start to suspect that maybe you're not on board, it definitely poses a problem for them because now they don't know if you're willing to do what's necessary to survive. That That's very interesting. It makes me it reminds me of this of a similar phenomenon that you often see when it comes to the police, which, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's another group that we're often led to think of as, oh, just because this person has this one job, that means they're an excellent, brave, noble, selfless, moral person, right? It's We kind of get that um, about people in the military and then about police officers very, very often, you know, where you're automatically a hero and a good person just by having that job. And you know, I've always had an attitude more kind of like what you were describing, where, you know, there's there's all kinds of people in, in these big organizations. And just like in, in, you know, the regular civilian world, there's there's good people, bad people, and a lot of people in between. But, you know, it's a similar thing with, with police when, when it'll come out, you know, that some particular group of cops somewhere has been doing just horrible shit, you know, just ridiculously horrible shit. And then you wonder, like, you know, for sure, there were a lot of guys in that police force who weren't directly actively part of whatever was going on, but they knew. And yeah. they kept their mouth shut because there's that culture of we are kind of a separate uh, elite self-contained group. You know, we're we're like separate from sort of the general population. We're kind of our own thing. And, and so even for someone who's not willing to actively do do some some shady things they'll at least look the other way and keep their mouth shut if other people are doing it um one one documentary people may have seen again on netflix that shows this in great detail is the documentary the seven five and it's about this um really really corrupt criminal new york city police officer who was basically working for for drug gangs and drug dealers and using his power as a cop to to help out you know various criminals in exchange for huge amounts of money. And you realize there's a lot of cops who were 
either involved in that activity only a little bit or who, like I said, you know, knew about it and just kind of kept quiet. So anyway, mm-hmm. that, that just, you know, I found that interesting the way you described that. It really sounded like, like what you see in police departments. Mm-hmm. To continue on with this theory uh, of trying to maintain solidarity, mm-hmm. one of one one of the famous pictures from the beginning of the conflict was the soldier or a, yeah the marines that were on the bridge. Uh, there's uh, a, a well known set of pictures from that time. This unit was a Marine regiment that was led by uh, Lieutenant Colonel McCoy from the 4th Marines. And he was somebody that was one of those really hard chargers. He was known for jumping out of his vehicle and throwing grenades. Like this guy just, uh, I I guess your typical Rambo type of character. Um, And they arrived at the Delia River, which was the boundary for Baghdad and they didn't meet any resistance that they thought that they were going to meet. So you're all amped up and then nothing happens. And that's kind of a reoccurring theme, which definitely is what kind of leads into the PTSD realm that you're just constantly flooding your brain with adrenaline and then crashing and adrenaline and then crashing to the point that it kind of just, fries your brain because these chemicals that you're not supposed to get every single day are just constantly being introduced to you. And, uh, it it definitely has an impact on your, uh, cognitive functions. This is my opinion. I, I don't have any science to back this up, but you can see this play out because there was no enemy and everybody was pumped up. So they went across the bridge And they fanned out, they formed their defensive perimeter, and there was nobody around until just this random van showed up. Now, the Iraqi military thought that the Marines were still 70 miles to the south. So there was no kind of, hey, don't go out anymore. And a blue Kia van started driving up. And inside were three men and two women, and they were heading to their home. The Marines saw it, and they started screaming out the, uh, you know, how far away it is. They were talking about, you know, you need to pay attention to the van that's coming up. And they started basically saying that, you know, the vehicle's too close. One person starts to shoot, and then everybody starts to shoot, uh, which you see with cops a lot as well. The the van was struck by about 100 bullets, and three people inside the van died. And the two survivors had to lay under the bodies of their dead relatives and not move because you just were hit with a bunch of bullets, so moving is probably not a good option. And then more vehicles uh, started to come up, and they were they had their weapons pointed at the vehicles, they ended up shooting a pedestrian who was an old man with a walking stick. And the journalists that were attached to it, um, they used the words murderer several times. And one of the younger, uh, probably one of the lieutenants, basically said to the reporters that if they're dumb enough to drive uh, where we are, then 
their death is their own problem. And one of the reporters, Kit Roan, uh, pointed out that they don't, they can't see you. They don't know what is going on. And the end of the conversation basically left with him walking away angry, uh, the commander, and nothing actually being taken care of as far as the situation goes. That's one of those examples of, I guess, like the hive mind defensive mentality that when you start hearing gunfire, you want to lay down suppressing fire. And if you're all hopped up, ready to, you know, hold back an enemy position, I definitely think you're going to overreact, which is something that we saw in in this situation. Yeah. And it seems like these sorts of incidents, if you're, if you're going to be occupying a foreign country militarily, much of whose population doesn't want you there for understandable reasons. I mean, nobody likes foreign troops occupying their country. I don't care where you are. Um, that these sorts of incidents are really kind of inevitable. It seems like there's no, there's no way around it. Once you create this situation where, where you're occupying a foreign country against the will of a lot of the population, that no matter how much, even if the, the occupiers are well-trained, well-disciplined and are, you know, pretty much trying to do the right thing and, and not, and trying to avoid unnecessary innocent casualties that and I just don't see how you could prevent these sorts of things from happening periodically. It's definitely a problem because you have to consider a lot of the military and a lot of the people carrying the guns and performing these missions are mostly the, the, the lower grade soldiers. So I mean, you've got 18 through 21 year olds who the soldiers are uh, more likely to be on the younger side and through the influences of Hollywood and just looking through the, the way that the military trains you. So when you're basic training, you care, you get this book called your smart book and you always had to have it on you. And in the inside of it, it's your basic soldiering manual. And then there's all these little stories so they only give you the sexiest, juiciest stories. So you do get, you know, the Audie Murphy kind of stories or a single guy, you know, taking out an entire uh, division of enemy soldiers with like a paperclip. And especially for me, you kind of get into this mentality that, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what they're looking for. And then you take that all the the charge of being in war and wanting to prove yourself or questioning whether you can prove yourself, it can have disastrous effects, especially if you have military commanders who don't respect the theory of insurgency operations, which, you know, that, that right there, shooting up an innocent uh, group of people is, again, it's just not a good way to start an occupation or to say, hey, we're here to free you. And, oh, by the way, we might accidentally uh, kill some of you, but it's all in the name of freedom. So obviously a big part of what you were dealing with over there were IEDs. Even even back back here in the States, we, we hear that term all the time on the news. So what are you dealing with when you're, when you're dealing with IEDs? Uh, IED, of course, is an improvised explosive device. And it's basically anything that they can make to, or they can make that creates a boom. 
Uh, and I mean, the, a lot of the IEDs were made with ammonium fertilizer and old discarded shells, artillery shells from the decades of war. Um, and initially they started off relatively basic, uh, not very complex, command wire detonated. So you would have a, an actual wire connected to it and some type of power source to detonate the bomb. But as the winter between 04 and 05 happened, the bombers became a lot more intelligent in the way that they were creating these devices. And they were, you know, giving accelerants for the explosion. They were doing different formats of IEDs because there are different uh, types, whether you want it to be a directed focus, which would be burying it under the ground or putting it under a uh, under an overpass. Or, I mean, you just have the IEDs that are planted on the side of the road with the intention of destroying whatever, typically vehicles that would be driving by. We started to see multiple shells being, uh, we call it daisy chained together. And the ways that they hid them just kept becoming more and more difficult for us to counter. Uh, we started finding IEDs in flower pots, in fake curb stones that they would make. As a suicide vest, we would start seeing, and a suicide vest is just uh, an IED that someone carries around with them and they, uh, they detonate them. Suicide vest, pretty, uh, pretty simple. Um, and they would start to basically make scarecrows of what we thought were coalition soldiers. So they would put them in a uniform, which they could buy up in Kurdistan. Uh, when we did go to Kurdistan, you could find pretty much everything that had been stripped from dead soldiers and being sold on the black market. M16s, night vision goggles, uh, I mean, everything that went missing ended up in the black market. So they could masquerade. We call them scarecrows. Uh, and they use them as a, uh, a come on, which is basically you try to bring the first responders in. And as they do, you detonate it on, on the first responders. Uh, they got to the point that they were sticking IEDs in the, the chest of dead Iraqis and I mean, these were these were booby trapped corpses that typically had some type of anti tapering trigger. So when it, somebody went up to them and you know kicked the body or tried to, to to flip it over to see if to see if they're still alive or whatnot, uh, that would cause the IED inside of the corpse to detonate. And for the detonations, they had uh, several different types. So. I had talked about a command wire, which is as simple as it gets. You have a wire going from the bomb to a remote, push the button, you get a boom. Then eventually they started going into uh, wireless methods, such as using portable radios or cell phones to receive the call to detonate the device. We also saw pressure plates, which is basically a mine you put a certain enough certain amount of weight on it and it causes it to detonate uh and you could either make it for for foot-based soldiers or for a vehicle uh your v uh, uh, an infantry person's not going to set off a vehicle mine 
because they just don't weigh enough to set off that pressure plate. And the more advanced stuff that we started to see were uh, infrared sensors, which would see the heat from the vehicle as we drive by, and that would cause it to detonate. So these people are they're uh, exhibiting human ingenuity in terms of being, uh, despite their you know not not great resources. Sounds like they're being pretty ingenious and clever and crafty in how they're doing this. I mean, they're, they're pretty much using things that they pick up off the street or you can buy in any kind of market. And in order to counter these things, obviously the military started to create a lot of different methods, which it didn't have. So it wasn't until a few years into the combat uh, that we started receiving these uh, devices. So for your command wire, you either see it or you don't. I mean, they could bury the command wire and then you'll never see it. Sometimes it's very apparent. It was all based upon visual observation. We, I talked about the remotes, which are the, you know, the cell phone and everything. We developed or radio jammers were developed for us. And I mean, it basically just squelches the entire spectrum that it is operating on. Uh, and they worked, but once they started doing that and they saw the cell phones didn't work anymore, they just switched to another tactic. So we're spending millions of dollars on testing, innovating, developing, and, and fielding these, this equipment. And by the time we do that, they're already off to another type of IED and this stuff is pretty much useless. And it's very, it sounds very asymmetric in the sense of most of the innovations they're coming up with are, you know, inexpensive, kind of simple, low-tech things. And then the innovations that the U.S. military is coming up with are all these, you know, very expensive, high-tech sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it definitely posed a problem for, you know, planners and people trying to respond to the issues that we were facing with the IEDs and how quickly they could switch up. And just like with trying to move the military to enact these changes just takes a long time unless you have the pressure of the number of IEDs that we did and uh, people back home start to be, start to ask the questions as to why we don't have better equipment. And then that's when the innovations really start rolling out uh, and of course, as the money gets opened up for uh, different companies to start producing these uh, counter IED solutions mm-hmm. for the for the pressure plates, we had what was called mine roller. So just picture this attachment that we put on the front of the vehicle, and it had I don't know like eight wheels on it, and it was weighed down. And essentially, you just push this thing along and you want it to blow up on that as opposed to blowing up underneath your Humvee or truck or whatnot. So pretty low-tech idea, but it wasn't something that we were deployed with. So again, it had to be made, developed, and sent out to the combat zones for the IR sensors, which were the heat sensors. Uh, we, I forget what it's called, but we basically just had this stick that we put in front of the Humvee and it was this, uh, I think it was about six foot long and it had a plate in front of it. It 
turn the plate really hot. And then if we drove in front of an IR sensor, it's going to detonate on the stick is and give us some buffer room as opposed to having the IED detonate under the vehicle or at the, off to the side of the vehicle. And then finally, we started to realize that a Humvee, which was designed for rear area uh, logistics support, replacing like the, hum- the, uh, the, the Jeeps and everything, we found that they didn't really make a good platform for a frontline vehicle because that's not what they were designed for. And that's why during the early portions, you see either these Humvees with canvas doors or this haphazardly slapped together armor because these vehicles weren't designed for that. And they had a flat bottom, which is very uh, – it's not the situation you want running over mines or IEDs because when something detonates, all the force is being uh, applied to that flat bottom – and directed upwards. So we developed V-shaped holes, uh, which are nothing new, but our vehicles typically weren't equipped with them. And that made the explosion force be directed to the side and reduce the actual force that's being exerted on the vehicle from the explosion. That makes sense. Sort of like how on a on a warship you want a hull that's kind of angled so mm-hmm. that so that shots deflect off of it instead of impacting directly into it. So that's the you know that that pretty much sums up the IEDs, and then going back to the car bombs, you know we were told the indicators to look for sagging. Uh, Sagging rear ends, uh, blown out windows, pretty much every vehicle that existed uh, (laughs) to include what they called the bongo truck, which was uh, just this little tiny cab over. I mean, you can think of like a Ford Ranger or something, but the two most prevalent vehicles in Mosul were bongo trucks or taxis. So again, everything was a potential threat, which kind of just blended into the natural surroundings you you were just taking a chance as to whether the vehicle was going to detonate on you and v-bids were used pretty uh pretty tactically in january 2004 we were averaging about one i one v-bid a week and there was a sharp increase between september december of 2004 where 247 V-bids had been used against uh, coalition forces. And there, there's no real way to counter because most V-bids, you're not going to know it's a V-bid until it's far too late. And we can't just stop all the traffic. Uh, it is a major city. So it, it's it's seriously just a roll of the dice as to what happens. Yeah, so basically what what they were telling you was – Look for characteristics that most of the vehicles in the city have, and then there's really not a whole lot you can do about it anyway. Is what it yeah. what, what it sounds like. So yeah, again, I it sounds like we're back to that kind of fatalistic attitude of well, you know, it's just a roll of the dice uh, every time I go out. Yeah, I mean that that's what it was. All right. Well, it's looking like um, we're we're running out of time for this episode, 
But BT, I just wanted to thank you again for your time and and for sharing your your expertise and your stories with us again today on the Dangerous History Podcast. I appreciate you having me, and it is it is enjoyable to be able to tell the stories because I don't think a lot of people understand outside of movies what actually goes on. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.